Aljazeera Podcast. Hey, it's Malika. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Take and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think. After a year at war with no end in sight, Ukraine might not look like a good financial investment. Near Zaporizhia, farmers are clearing artillery shells from their fields and driving tractors in body armor. Russia's invasion attacks are already spiking global food prices. Russian forces are said to be trucking away tons of Ukrainian grain and salting the earth they leave behind. But a group of oligarchs, Harvard University, Saudi Arabia, and the Vanguard Group are investing. Today, the most prominent investors in Ukraine include Vanguard Group, BNP Asset Management Holding, Goldman Sachs. I could go on and on. A number of Western institutions are working with oligarchs, investment firms, to take over more agricultural land for their own economic and financial interests. Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. So what does this mean for its farmers? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today, I'm handing off the mic to one of our senior producers, Amy Walters, who's been following this story. Hey, Amy. Hi, Malika. How are you? I'm good. What have you got for us today? Yeah, well, this one has been kind of a tough one to track down. How so? Well, there's been so much coverage of the war in Ukraine and the land Russia's taking from Ukraine. One village has traded hands 14 times already. Mm. But when it comes to this agricultural land and who owns what, the story just gets really murky. Mm. And to understand it better, I think it'll help if I introduce you to someone who's been following this a lot longer than I have. We just released a report about it. That's Frederick Musso, and he got into land issues because he's seen drought and famines firsthand. He's tried to help people dealing with war and the hunger that comes with it around the world. And he had this realization. Uh, I started looking at this uh, famines and food crisis and realized it was the policies that were driving this crisis and human suffering around the world. So now he tries to address these policies at the Oakland Institute in California with Anuradha Mittal, who's the founder there. Whether we talk about climate crisis, equity issues, land is central, Africa or in Asia or Latin America, or Eastern Europe or North America, for that matter. And Frederick's been focusing on Ukraine specifically, which is interesting because it's known as the breadbasket of Europe, even the breadbasket to the world. Ukraine is pretty much known as the breadbasket of Europe. The breadbasket of Europe. Europe's breadbasket. And a big reason is the lush soil. The country's rich, fertile soil has long been famous. Ukraine's exceptionally fertile soil has made it a key player on global food markets. About 70% of Ukraine's land is given over to agricultural production. About 25% is the very fertile black soil. Most of it is this black soil, which is very attractive because it produces very high yields. It sounds very nutritious, I guess you could say, for wheat and vegetables. It is 
said to be the most fertile soil in the world. So good for farmland. Yes, we keep hearing Ukraine is a breadbasket of Europe. But actually, before the war, they export to Pakistan, to Africa, they export to all over the world. Ukraine exports about 24% of international trade of wheat. So this is very highly sought after land with very highly sought after soil. And it's creating this additional problem for Ukrainian farmers on top of the war. Just a couple of months ago, Ukrainians, farmers, academics made a desperate call for attention. They were saying, while well, people are dying of the world, farmers were fighting are losing their land to these oligarchs and financial interests while we are fighting the East. And Lorena Fedorova was one of the people who made that call. She works at EcoAction, a Ukrainian environmental organization with farmers there. I work here as a land use specialist in agriculture department where we strive to green our Ukrainian agriculture. When we talked to her, she was at home in Kyiv. Fortunately, it was fairly peaceful that day. Ukrainian farmers are doing an amazing job and truly heroic job in this war because they still try to cultivate their land even though it may be really dangerous. They still try to work on their land and do what is important for them. And Lorena says small farmers need to be protected. We have a lot of big agricultural companies that can control a lot of land. And that's a big problem for small farmers because they simply can compete. So how did those agricultural companies get a hold of all this farmland? I asked Frederick how it all began. You recently published this study on something that's interesting and also I think for a lot of people surprising. I know until 1991, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. And under that umbrella, with the old communist system in place, all the farmland was collective, which meant no one person owned any of it. It was farmed by the people, but owned by the state. So then what happened when the Soviet Union dissolved? Yes, we have to start there. In the early 90s, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ukraine embarked on a policy of privatization with a strong from Western institutions, such as the International Monetary Fund, which told Ukraine that they need to privatize and liberalize their economy. So that's what the government did, privatizing land. And very soon, in the following few years, a very significant part of this land was accumulated by the oligarchy. So these Ukrainian oligarchs quickly became millionaires by accumulating the land that had belonged to the state. The people and the farmers of Ukraine didn't like it. And in 2001, 10 years after Ukraine became independent, the government put a moratorium on the sale of land. So that it will stop this process of accumulations that was very obviously problematic for the country and the economy and the citizens of Ukraine. Things continued like that for a while. And then in 2014, there was a revolution. These are the scenes that triggered the breakup of Ukraine. Yeah, then it's very interesting to remember when you had this Maiden revolution, the people were in the street, protests, people 
Dead in the street, unarmed protesters gunned down in the streets by the riot police who were retreating from Maidan Square. At the time, they wanted freedom and democracy and they were keen to move to the West, but they were also very keen to end corruption in Ukraine, including this major power of oligarchs. But, he says, there was one key condition. The key condition for moving to the West was to open their land market, to lift this moratorium on the sale of agricultural land, to favor the consolidation of land, to large agribusinesses. The IMF has repeatedly called on Ukraine to start the privatization and development of agricultural land. The International Monetary Fund, the IMF, or the World Bank, had $20 billion in the hands to offer to the country. And Frederick says they're willing to lend it to Ukraine. So at this point, Ukraine is in this pitted battle between Russia and the West. The IMF is dangling $20 billion of aid if Ukraine chooses their side. The International Monetary Fund has agreed to provide up to 18 billion U.S. dollars in loans for Ukraine, which, along with aid from the international community, will add up to 27 billion dollars in total assistance in the next two years. So Ukraine chose the International Monetary Fund. It chose the West, but still, most Ukrainians were against lifting the land sale moratorium because they had what kind of feels that. This might increase concentration of land and corruption and more power in the end of the oligarchs. But this Western institution kept pushing for it. And then, in December 2019, this all comes to a head on the streets of Kyiv. Hundreds of demonstrators have taken to Kyiv's Independence Square this morning to protest against changes to draft bill regarding the sale of private agricultural land. They were very, very strong protests of farmers in the street of Kiev and around the country. 70% of the people were against it. The protesters are concerned that opening up the land market may destroy their enterprises. But by 2020, the COVID pandemic began. And a stay-at-home order was in place. People couldn't protest. And that's when Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky made his move. People could not protest anymore. Zelensky was able to bring this measure to Parliament. And it passed. The land sale moratorium was lifted. It was passed with this vast majority of people against it. But it took a couple of years before the land market opened and the law went into effect. So since July 2021, there has been thousands of land transactions for agricultural land that can now be purchased. So what is the core issue here? Well, the question we have to ask ourselves is why is it the number one demand from Western institution? Gonna help you, but you'll have to put your land for sale. So who actually owns the land? The Ukrainian farmland that could not be bought before 2020, who owns it now? And that's what really surprised Frederick and his team. We'll have the answer after the break. I'm Kevin Hurton, host of our documentary podcast, Al Jazeera Investigates. We've got a new series called Gold Mafia, where we expose some of the biggest smugglers and money launderers in Africa. Look for a new episode wherever you get your podcasts.
Our senior producer, Amy Walters, has been covering the fight over Ukrainian land, a fight that started well before the war. So, Amy, you have been digging into this question of who owns Ukrainian land, and we keep hearing about oligarchs. What does that mean here? Yeah, I had the same question. Since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, there was all this land that had been state land, and it went to these oligarchs. And you see that word in the news, oligarchs. But I asked Anaranda Mittal about that term. She's the founder of the Oakland Institute that produced this report. You heard from her earlier. And her answer surprised me. You know, I think when we talk about Russia, Ukraine, Eastern Europe, we use the term oligarch. I think very often in the Western world, we use the term CEO. (laughs) So we're talking about individuals who are in control of or run large corporations or large funds where they have managed to have access to power, both political power and economic power. The policies that they promote, they're very often working with international financial institutions. They're able to secure loans so they can increase the control over the resources of the country. I mean, this is how I would describe an oligarch. So now it's 2023. Ukrainian land has been bought and sold for a couple of years now. And Frederick Mousseau's been working on this report to look at who owns it now. So what we found is we have 28% of the country already in the hands of oligarchs, foreign interests, or corrupt individuals who have been accumulating this land. So 28% of the land, a quarter of the land, is controlled by oligarchs and other Entities? Yes, pure foreign companies, U.S. firms. You have the sovereign fold of Saudi Arabia, which controls land. And did it surprise you when you put that together? Yes, because we kept hearing about the oligarchs. And then digging further, we found that these semi businesses were getting massive financing from Western banks, public banks. And before the law even was passed, is that right? Yeah, so even before the revolution, the Western institutions started lending to these large agribusinesses and these oligarchs. And this has just increased in recent years, and the World Bank justified it, saying we're going to move less productive small farmers out of the business to run large-scale agriculture. Is it written down as such? Yeah, it is really the way the World Bank goes and says it. So the World Bank, the IMF, the EBCD, the European Bank for Construction and Development, they're all helping to fund this large-scale agriculture. That's where the food chain starts, so to speak. Then you have the farms themselves, and then there's the oligarchs who are purchasing the farms, often in partnership with other banks, investors, But that's not where the food chain ends. There are companies, individual investors, shareholders, who are holding Ukrainian land now as part of their portfolio. You know, what we found was with oligarchs, with their companies have gone public on stock markets, they have seen a number of banks and investors becoming shareholders. So you see there the French BNP, the American Goldman Sachs, So these are all so-called investors who are taking shares to get returns. 
And, uh, you know, you mentioned oligarchs, Ukrainian oligarchs. But what about Russia? Do we know if Russia is making any investments here? So before this uh, revolution, there were a number of the oligarchs who were close to the Russian power. And it has been an issue in the conflict today in the eastern part of the country, in, in areas controlled by Russia. You do have a land that has changed hands pro Western-sided oligarchs to Russian ones. So of the top five landholders in Ukraine, two are U.S. companies, one called NCH Capital, and NCH Capital is a private equity fund. It's managing money for U.S. universities, U.S. foundations, some of the largest U.S. companies there, such as GE, General Electric, Dokinicals, and universities, you will find Harvard. I mean, you find very prominent investors who have their assets invested in the land in Ukraine. Yeah, I saw one of the foundations was the Nathan Cummings Foundation. And their goal, which you mentioned in the report, and I think I've heard announced on public radio in the U.S., is to create a more just, vibrant, sustainable, and democratic society. Funny, right? A number of the foundations who are invested there say on the paper that they are also ecology, environment, and climate. We have been talking about land, but we haven't said a word about the kind of agriculture these companies are doing. And this is highly mechanized, highly intensive in chemicals. And uh, in Ukraine, they are really going into the most industrial farming one can imagine. Have you heard anything back from any of these investors or, or, or advocates for this policy? NCH Capital, the World Bank, the IMF? Yeah, no, that's a good question. We've written to all of them. Unfortunately, so far, they seem very uninterested by uh, what we are telling them. Frederick says none of these public banks acknowledge their letter. And right now, Ukraine is in a lot of debt. It's relying on these banks, the World Bank, the IMF for relief. But again, that relief has a price. Last year, Ukraine paid $4 billion of interest to the World Bank for their debts. And it's just increasing and increasing. And they are really concerned. They might lose their farms and might lose their land. And in 2024, the amount of privatized agricultural land will grow. And now Ukraine may be asked to allow foreigners to buy land too. Until now, they've only been leasing the land. But not all Ukrainians are concerned. Roman Grishin has been traveling back and forth between the U.S. and Ukraine since 2008. And he's proud of what Ukraine has achieved. Ukraine was the leading agricultural company, country out of all the Soviet states. And we were the one borrowing the technologies, borrowing the approaches, borrowing the seeds. We mimicked the U.S. technologies in Ukraine, adjusting them to our realities. And he draws a very clear line between business interests in Ukrainian land and the war that's happening on it. We need to differentiate two notions here. First of all, if it is there forced illegal occupation, and I would add even medieval occupation of the land with weapons and all sorts of atrocities that they did, that is not to be supported at any situation. When we are talking about doing business 
according to the law, international law, and which are dominant in the West, then it is a totally different thing. Lorena, the Ukrainian land specialist who's still trying to help the farmers, feels differently. It's really scary that these farmers, they're just forced to work on their land. We hear a lot of cases when farmers just died on their field because they found some mine in the field. But they don't feel like there's another option, she says. And there is a chance that private companies, large-scale farms, will buy this land while Ukrainian farmers can't. The farmers are at war. That's Anuradha Mittal from the Oakland Institute again. They are dying for their land, so you're not going to find them organizing. And it is in that environment that you find these vested interests are marching into the country to take over country's land. When you have this incredibly fertile arable land, that has to be considered sacred and treated differently rather than a resource to be controlled, to be pillaged, and for extractive agriculture to be practiced. So on one hand, it is devastating for the Ukrainian countryside, for the Ukrainian farmers, but it is also devastating for the global community. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Chloe K. Lee, Ashish Mahotra, Khalid Sultan, Nagin Oliai, Miranda Lynn, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Our engagement producers are Adam Abugad and Munira Aldosari. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.